president warned his supporters that Joe Biden wants to turn Minnesota into a refugee camp, which is intensely racist even for him. Chrissy Teigen's heartbreaking Instagram post sparked an outpouring support for her and her family. And we're talking with culture writer Kovier Biakolo about how gentrification and the pandemic are teaming up to make minority communities' lives that much harder. The date, October 1st, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Happy spooky season. We made it to October somehow. Yeah, somehow. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It was April and now it's spooky. That's what happened here. Uh, Before we dive in, favorite Halloween movie, go. Okay, well, I'm not I'm not actually a spooky p- person. I get scared. I don't like horror films. So I only like like children's Halloween movies. So uh, Hocus Pocus, oh, duh. I know everyone loves it, but I've got right. a special it's- connection with Hocus Pocus because I'm pretty sure that Sarah Jessica Parker's character in this movie was my first crush as a child. <laughs> Ooh, that's a great first crush, honestly, because she was amazing in that role. She drew- I think I think it's her best role. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Coming for the Sex and the City fans with that one. (laughs) But I also can't fault you for it. Um, I'm with you, though. I don't really like scary movies. Like, one time my fiancé told me the plot of the movie It Follows, and then I had nightmares about it. So, but then again, that movie is also, like, one of the scariest. So I I don't, I can't be blamed for that. Um, (laughs) So I think... My favorite may not count as a Halloween movie, but I'm going to make it count. Uh, Young Frankenstein by Mel Brooks starring Gene Wilder. Yes. Absolutely. One of the best things to watch this season. I grew up watching that movie with my parents. It is a family favorite. It is so funny. If you guys haven't seen it, please go see it. as soon as possible and then we'll just make we'll, we'll drop references to the movie throughout the rest of the month and it's your job to find them people okay time for today's top stories here's what you need to know first up president trump held a rally in duluth minnesota last night and we have moved past dog whistles in this race into straight up out loud fear-mongering racism some context Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar came to the U.S. when she was six years old while fleeing war in Somalia. Minnesota just happens to have one of the largest Somali populations in the country. This is the second time in as many weeks that Trump has riled up his fans against Omar. In Pennsylvania last week, he marveled that Omar, who is an American because she's in Congress, he marveled that she is, quote, telling us how to run our country, a line he repeated last night. Oh, also, that 700% increase in refugees that Trump says former Vice President Joe Biden wants, that's technically true. Since last year, the U.S. would only permit 18,000 refugees maximum to enter the U.S. And last night, his administration told Congress that it would only admit 15,000. That's down from 85,000 in the last year of the Obama administration. Meanwhile, millions of Americans are at risk of having their utilities shut off as they miss payments due to the pandemic. That's according to the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, which estimates that 179 million Americans are currently at risk of losing service. 
The Washington Post cited that data in a new piece today, looking at how the ongoing economic crisis that the pandemic has caused has created a massive number of people who've fallen behind on paying their electric, water, and gas bills. And the debts that are racking up are going to be hard for the utilities companies to swallow. The NEADA thinks that by the end of the year, electric and gas debts alone will total more than $24 billion. In Indiana, the Post found in an analysis of public records, 112,000 households that are four months or more behind on their power bill. That's four times as high as the same period last year. As of today, only 21 states and the District of Columbia have bans in place preventing utilities from being disconnected while people are struggling to look for work or handling reduced income. But over the course of the fall, another nine states will see those protections expire. And finally, some good news out of Colorado. This morning, the governor issued a blanket pardon for people who've been convicted there for possessing an ounce or less of weed. Colorado's legislature passed a law last year giving Governor Jared Polis the power to issue pardons of people possessing up to two ounces of marijuana, the legal limit for medical card holders. But Polis opted instead to cap the amount at one ounce, which is how much recreational weed you can have under Colorado law. Those pardons, by the way, won't affect municipal convictions or convictions from other states. But unlike local laws in Denver and Boulder, where people can apply to have their marijuana conviction records expunged, the pardon Governor Polis issued is automatic. The decision will affect at least 2,700 people, clearing a potential hurdle to getting jobs, passing background checks, and applying for student loans. It also brings Colorado up to speed with other states with legal weed like Nevada and California. Nevada has pardoned more than 15,000 people, and California has set up a process that will automatically expunge marijuana convictions from people's records. Well, it's a start. (laughs) It's a start. It's not like a ton of people, but it's a start. It's a much needed start because, as we know, um, uh, mostly black and brown people have been affected by these crimes these so-called crimes that uh, <laughs> that are now totally fine for white people to do. So <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I one of my pet peeves over the years has been watching as people who have been convicted of possessing and selling marijuana over the years when it was illegal in states have been blocked because of the convictions from going legit, from starting up their own businesses in states where it's now legal. And it makes me so mad to see like Instagram white weed moms just making bank off of endorsements and ads when someone who got caught with like selling a dime bag and thrown in jail for it can't do the same. It's just the worst. Yes, it is incredibly unfair and infuriating. And, you know, thank goodness something is start, you know, there's some sort of rectification for this, but there's a bunch more to do. But yes, happy about this. (laughs) Okay, Casey, uh, what's happening in pop culture today? Uh, Well, a really sad one today. People are sending an outpouring of kind words to Chrissy Teigen after she shared on Instagram that despite their best efforts, doctors were unable to save her third child. We told you earlier in the week that Teigen had been hospitalized because she was constantly bleeding despite being over halfway through her pregnancy. And at the time, she seemed scared but hopeful and confident that the unborn baby would be okay. But last night, she posted on Instagram to say that the baby, who she and her husband, John Legend, had taken to referring to as Jack, just wasn't able to get the fluids he needed, despite multiple blood transfusions. She wrote, quote, To our Jack, I'm so sorry that the first few moments of your life were met with so many complications that we couldn't give you the home you needed to survive. We will always love you. 
Half an hour later, she tweeted, quote, driving home from the hospital with no baby. How can this be real? In response, people responded with love and sharing their own stories of loss. And as one Twitter user put it, quote, for too long, families, especially women, went through this kind of thing in secret, making more and more people feel alone and sometimes ashamed. You are so appreciated. I saw that like less than 10 minutes after she posted on Instagram, it just happened to open up the app. And um, yeah, that uh, was way more affecting than I realized it would be. And I mean, thanks to her for, for sharing that and like coming out and actually talking about it, but also, wow, I'm, I'm still kind of messed up over it. Yeah. It was extremely affecting to see because it wasn't just a tweet. It also was a photo showing her immense pain in the, in mm-hmm. the hospital room. And you know what? We did talk about her getting a lot of love and support, but she's also gotten a lot of hate, um, you know, and a lot of disrespectful people coming out and saying like, you know, why did you take a photo like this in this moment? And it's like, oh first, my God. she's allowed to grieve however she wants to. And I'm sorry, but seeing that photo was affecting. And I think people should be affected by that because yes, a lot of miscarriages and women's pain are not shown. And so seeing that makes it real for people in America who like to be like, hush, hush about your problems. Don't, don't make a fuss, handle it yourself. And it's like, no, we as a society need to normalize talking about miscarriages and, and just talking, talking about all of this that women experience. Yeah, we just come to be kind of conditioned to see pregnancy like people see it on TV, that, you know, it happens and everything is hunky-dory, the woman gets a big belly, and then there's a baby, and there's no problems in between, except for maybe she gets kind of weird cravings, and I, I really agree that it's it's good that we're normalizing that this is a scary, hard process that we expect women to just go through and get through and just without really thinking about what that means. Yeah. Uh, One tweet that I uh, thought was really good was actually from Zelda Williams. That's Robin Williams' daughter. And she said, however someone chooses to grieve publicly or privately is valid. Grief will fill a room if you let it and spill out of every window and door. Let people grieve however they choose, not however you believe they should, and hope the world returns the favor for you one day. I'm. That's it. Let her grieve how she wants to grieve. Yeah, especially since we all will need to grief at some point in our lives. So I, I really felt that last part. I, I got to point out, though, just the biggest trash thing to come from this, though, I almost am loathe to bring it up, uh, because Chrissy Teigen had been feuding with QAnon a few weeks back. There's just so much like disgusting glee out of that community right now, hitting at her. Which is truly terrible because one of the uh, one of the things that QAnon claims to support is protecting like children and children's lives. And and this woman is grieving the loss of her child. And it seems extremely backwards for many reasons. Right. (sighs) Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Covier Biocolo about how the pandemic could make gentrification even more intense. Fit. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from She Fit. 
Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. What's up? What's up? This is Robin Dixon, co-host of Reasonably Shady, which has just been nominated for an NAACP Image Award in the Outstanding Arts and Entertainment Podcast category. This is so big for Giselle and I. And of course, we must thank all of our fantastic listeners. But we need your help. Visit vote.naacpimageawards.net to vote for Reasonably Shady. That's vote.naacpimageawards.net. But don't wait. Voting closes on February 5th at 9 p.m. Eastern. And make sure to listen to Reasonably Shady every single Monday on the Black Effect Podcast Network. This season, get football on your terms with NFL Game Pass. Let's go! See every snap from every game with full game replays. What a throw, what a catch! Listen to all the action as it happens with live game audio. Watch the dog, G! Leaping grab Devontae Adams! Plus, watch your team on your time with condensed game replays. Wow! Get football on your terms with NFL Game Pass. Go to NFL.com slash Game Pass to start your free trial today. Welcome back. Black and brown communities have over the years gone from areas where wealthy white people warn each other not to go to being seen as prime targets for buying a property and redeveloping it. It's a process that's left marginalized communities displaced, and it looks like COVID-19 may make that even more intense. To talk about the way these two crises intersect, we're joined by culture writer and multicultural scholar, Covier Biakolo. Good job on the name. <laughs> but I guess we used to work together. <laughs> listen to some other podcasts you were on. We're, we're prepared. <laughs> so earlier this month, you published a piece on Medium with the headline, The Cities Where Gentrification and COVID-19 Collide. What made you want to dig into this story? I think my main reason for digging into the story, to be quite honest, was just um, whenever I stepped outside my neighborhood and whenever I would talk to my friends, I'm just seeing a lot of closures and I wanted to understand exactly what was happening and not just from a kind of narrative anecdotal point of view because some of the places that I really like going to in Crown Heights and Prospect Leffert's Garden they've closed and I know some of these people they know me and I was really interested first of all from the business perspective and then I really wanted to make it more human and just seeing what has happened to just some people I'm not seen as much in the neighborhood anymore. And I'm like, oh, did they leave? Did they leave because they wanted to leave or did they leave because they were pushed out? And considering that these are neighborhoods, Prospect Levis Garden, Crown Heights, uh, along with other Brooklyn neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy, um, these are neighborhoods that we know just from living in them, we know that they are prime spots for gentrification. So I wanted to understand what was going on and how COVID-19 would change the face of my neighborhood, which is already changing. So I feel like we've all heard the term, but when you use it in your piece, how are you defining gentrification? You know, one of the great things about this piece is that I went to a lot of different people to understand what gentrification means. And one of the main things I learned is that we're all talking about gentrification in very subjective ways because we're all measuring it in very subjective ways when we study it and when we report on it. But when I'm using gentrification, I am talking about fundamentally the displacement of black and brown people in neighborhoods which were previously ignored 
and having been previously ignored by both the state, by businesses, etc., etc., they are now prime targets for a certain white, yuppie, middle-class group of people. And might I add, it's not just this group of people because according to that definition of gentrification, it's easy to racialize it. I'm also a gentrifier as somebody who came to Brooklyn during the time when it was changing. So I want to be very clear that it's very easy because I'm black to kind of like mix in, but judging by my income, by my degrees, et cetera, my education level, et cetera, et cetera, I am also a person who has to be cognizant and can be seen as part of the problem. No, I get that. I, I'm in East Harlem here in Manhattan, and I think about that a lot. Uh, the fact that there are people in this community who you know, have been here for much longer, lower income, et cetera, and I, I'm thankful that the building I live in was built on a vacant par- parking lot, so I didn't have to worry too much about displacing people, but I get that. So yeah, I feel like the term gentrification has gotten kind of emotionally charged as the years have gone on. Is that something you notice when talking with people for the story? Definitely. I think the thing about it too is that you know, the emotions come from a very practical place because one of the ladies I talked to, um, she had been in her neighborhood her entire life, and she's in her 30s, but she said she's the only person. And you hardly ever hear stories like that anymore of people who like have been in Brooklyn in an apartment for 30 plus years, and she inherited it from her mother. And so I think that for me, you know, when we talk about the discussion being emotionally charged, we also have to look at it from the perspective of our practical reasons. So we have the fact that we rarely have people who can afford, who have been in Brooklyn, who grew up in Brooklyn when Brooklyn was being ignored. You could not pay people to move into Brooklyn in the 80s, some people. You couldn't pay them. And now you have a situation in which I say New York is kind of becoming a city for the rich, at least, you know, COVID has kind of shown that because how sustainable is it really if long-term residents cannot afford to stay here when they want to? So you looked at how the pandemic was affecting communities in Miami, Oakland, and Brooklyn. What made you choose to focus on these three cities in particular? It was actually more of a regional kind of interest because my initial focus was just Brooklyn. And then I spoke with the editor and she said, why don't we expand this a little bit more to see what's going up? on in other parts of the country. Oakland was kind of an easy one because almost every single piece of scholarship about gentrification in the last decade focuses on Oakland. Like if you type gentrification into Google right now, a bunch of stuff on Oakland is going to come. And then I thought Miami was interesting because I was between Miami and Chicago. Um, Chicago, because I had lived there, I thought that would be an interesting one to see as well. But I thought Miami would provide different kind of introduction for people who weren't familiar with climate gentrification, which I think we're going to see a lot more of in an era where we're seeing the ramifications in terms of migration patterns of climate change. So on the subject of climate gentrification, how does that work? Okay, in general, if we're speaking in general, climate gentrification occurs when black and brown people, lower income people, are displaced by wealthy, usually white people, because where those wealthy white people are currently, the effects of climate change have eroded either 
the landscape or the desirability of the place. And as a result, what happens is they now move into lower income spaces or spaces that were traditionally for people who were in the working class in many parts of the world and certainly in this country, black and brown. And because of that pattern of moving into those neighborhoods, those folks are now displaced. So it feels morbid to bring this up, but the way that the disease has killed way more black and brown people nationwide, it feels like that could leave a bunch of empty properties for gentrifiers to snatch up. Is that something that you came across or am I just being totally overly morbid with this? Oh, that is a very, very good question. I will say that I didn't explore that in its entirety. I think that we also have to keep in mind that, you know, as black and brown people have died, it doesn't necessarily mean and especially because a lot of black and brown folks have been the essential workers, it doesn't necessarily mean now that the properties in these places can only be paid for by the people who have unfortunately died. As we know in a lot of black and brown communities, it is very much a family affair in order to try and sometimes keep a property that a family may own everybody may have to kind of pull together, including extended family. But I will say it's not necessarily morbid of you to think so, because given just the way the capitalist structures operate, it makes sense that may be on the minds of, you know, high-scale developers and people who kind of want to develop a city without keeping in mind that the city should be for the people who are already there, not the people who they want to be there. You bring up landlords in your piece, and unlike a lot of stuff I've read lately, you have sympathy for at least some of them. Why is that? Well, I wouldn't categorize it like that. Please don't get me <laughs> please don't get me rushed by Brooklyn organizers. Thank you very much. Um, I will say this. I think a lot of us in our minds, we do not distinguish between people who just own a property and are basically earning money from that property. That's kind of like their job or they need it for their own survival. We don't distinguish between those kinds of landlords and real big time property developers. And I think it's very important for us to distinguish them because a lot, if we did, we would see that some of those landlords are just like us, kind of trying to survive the system. And so I thought it was necessary. And when I talked to some people in real estate, it was in my conversations with them that really kind of made me kind of understand that a little bit better and wanted to ultimately distinguish between those people who had one or two properties and they have it either as a matter of their own family wealth. And people forget that in this country, owning a home for black people has been a serious, seriously, probably one of the greatest forms of wealth. It's probably been one of the few ways that black people have been able to pass some level of wealth down to the next generation. And that has been decimated since 2008. So let's keep that in mind. So I want to distinguish between those folks and just these gigantic corporations who are just ultimately displacing entire groups of people. And we've kind of seen it for the last 10 to 20 years now. And with the pandemic, I think that people kind of had this hope that, oh, all the rich people would leave and then rents would come down in the neighborhoods that contain the most black and brown people. But that's obviously not what has happened. So is there a good solution here? Is there anyone you can point to that's really helping keep the people in these communities in their homes as this pandemic is going on? I think the heroes 
of this moment are the organizers. And I talked to a bunch of organizers. Obviously, I mentioned the Audrey Lord project. There's a huge anti-identification, and there has been in Brooklyn, and a lot of different small grassroots movements. The same thing with Oakland, that Moms for Housing was there prior to the pandemic. I think what happened was they actually had a judge grant them a space that initially they had to go to court for. So it's not even just in those organizations that I've mentioned. There's a lot of like non-official pulling together of different communities. There is a lot of bartering going on right now. There is an economy happening that is going to be very hard for us to keep records of because people are banding together in a very, very important way, but I think it's almost, like I said in the piece, it's almost as a response to just how awful it has been. And from what the organizers have said, this is how it has always been for ultimately the working class. The working class has always been in housing insecurity. And so I think that we should also keep that in mind is that some of these things, they're new in terms of our reporting of them, but they've actually been happening in communities for a long time. That's a really good point. Well, Kovie, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's it for today. Join us tomorrow for another round of DM911 with your favorite advice giver, Stephen Laconte. And remember, if you're having a hard time getting into the spooky season vibe this year, here's a quick scary story for you. The election is a month away. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. Calling all partners. Losing weight is better together with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. In fact, people who diet together lose 20% more weight than dieting on their own. Get new premium meals with up to 30 grams of protein. They're big and filling and taste delicious. Plus, try our new restaurant faves that taste like your favorite restaurant portioned with half the calories. Don't wait. You could win big cash during Nutrisystem's Better Together Partner Plan 100K giveaway. And maybe win the grand prize of $25,000. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash right now and get 50% off plus an extra $50 off your first month. You heard me right. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash thin right now and get 50% off plus an extra $50 off. Don't wait. This partner plan offer will not last long. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash thin right now and get 50% off plus an extra $50 off. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash thin. See website for details on our two-month subscription offer. No purchase necessary. Open only to U.S. residents over 21. Void where prohibited. Runs December 25 through April 4th, 2022. For official rules, visit Nutrisystem.com. Sponsored by it's time to gear up for the NFL postseason. Yes, sir! Head over to NFLShop.com today for the largest assortment of officially licensed gear. I need it! NFL Shop is your destination for jerseys, t-shirts, headwear, and more. Oh, you're sweet with it! Come back after the game for the best selection of NFL gear anywhere. How you like that, baby? Rep your team pride with styles fit for the whole family. To shop now, go to NFLShop.com. 
Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council.